This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Radio is everywhere. Always accurate and precise. Bloomberg's really one of the places that's reporting facts. Your communication capabilities are wonderful for our business. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. On this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best... Chris Ailman, CIO at CalSTRS, says deja vu all over again when it comes to interest rate hikes. The Fed's uncertain about the future. They're worried about inflation, so they're going to raise rates. Not sure about the pace. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy prepares to battle New York City over congestion pricing. We can't fix a broken MTA in New York City on the back of New Jersey commuters. How much will student loan debt weigh on the economy? Essentially, I'm like cutting certain portions of my food and also just like limiting how many times I go out socially as well. Bloomberg Best, Bloomberg's best stories of the week. Powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. Denise, some big events headed our way in the coming week and weeks. Bank earnings and inflation data this coming week and then the Fed's next FOMC meeting later this month. Well, where do we stand, Ed, heading into what, by all accounts, is going to be a very busy second half of July? Well, Chris Ailman, CIO at CalSTRS, talked about that and markets and investing more broadly with Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld and Scarlett Fu. Let's listen in. Let's get your take here on what's going on with the Fed and their lack of consensus on where the economy is. They're kind of obsessed with making sure they present a unified picture to the rest of us, even though we know that they are in disagreement over where things stand. What does that tell us about the policy that they enact? Scarlett, you know, it's deja vu all over again. If we replayed this discussion from one year ago, I think it would be the same, which is the Fed's uncertain about the future. They're worried about inflation, so they're going to raise rates. Not sure about the pace. We now know what it was then. Uh, and, And here we are again. Employment is still strong. We're worried about a recession. Um, You know, Katie is talking about an inverted yield curve. Happy birthday to the yield curve. It's one year of being inverted. So uh, it's it's uncertainty all over again. Uh, I still think there's a recession coming like everyone else. But we're one year into this. We're one year into this, and you point out that uh, CalSTRS fiscal year ended on June 30th. So you're at the start of a new fiscal year. How were you positioned through the end of last year, and how are you now positioned for this new fiscal year? You know, it really was a challenge. We started the year last year a little defensive. If you remember in the summertime, we had a nice rally. Then the market bottomed out in in the fall, and then we saw a rally, obviously, in the last six months. To answer your question specifically, we've been slightly underweight, so we've a little bit underperformed our, our underlying benchmark. With that said, we're still almost 45, 50% in in stocks. Both U.S. and non-U.S. stocks did great last year. It's a bull market. You know, U.S. stocks are up over almost 19% last year. Clearly, as you've talked, it's the largest growth tech stocks that were up the most. Uh, But stocks were up. So we did okay, but not smashingly. I, I expect probably... You know, an upper single digit kind of year and looking forward, 
I think the best we can hope for is a single-digit year. Mm -hmm. Okay, a single-digit year, not too bad. I know that your fiscal year just started, but if you think about coming into 2023, the big call was that this was going to be the year of fixed income, and so far it looks like it's turning into just another year for big tech. Is it still the year of the bond, or have we moved past that narrative? Katie, you know, I would say it's the year to pay attention to bonds and to pay attention to the bond market. Um, I think it's still going to be a mixed year. I mean, we're talking about the Fed debating to raise rates, not cutting, debating to raise rates. So, uh, you know, when I think about the, the Bloomberg aggregate index, uh, it's going to have another challenging year. It was negative last year, uh, not by much, but a little bit. The difference is now look at the yield curve last year to this year and how we're talking about yields, you know, close to 5% in the two year. Uh, those are attractive income levels. So I think you're going to be able to make money buy and hold. In terms of trading in fixed income, it's going to be a tough year. Going to be a tough year trading those bonds. I want to talk about uh, the credit market specifically, though, because when you say pay attention to bonds, I'm looking at spreads, both junk and investment grade, that have just been grinding tighter and tighter, it feels like, every single month. Do you What message do you take from that? And do you think it actually matches up with the fundamentals? Katie, it's back to the old adage of, uh, sad to say, but sheep get sheared and pigs get slaughtered. I think that people are getting a bit greedy when they're tightening in those spreads. Uh, they want yield. People are hunting for yield. That's usually not a good sign. Uh, but I have to say, the fundamentals in the stock market are almost equally baffling. Mm. Uh, we are still seeing earnings. I mean, employment is at a 50-year low. The the market, uh, the U.S. economy added 4 million jobs last year. So it's tough to say that investing into corporate won't do okay, but I wouldn't trade it. I'd, again, buy and hold for a period, but, but don't try and trade it. It's going to be a tough market. You said the fundamentals in the equity market are baffling. What do the fundamentals in private equity and private credit look like to you now, given that we are maybe going into recession, maybe not? Either way, we're going to kind of bump along this slow growth mode. Yeah, that recession, Scarlett, we said, I even said was going to happen a year ago. It's still looming out there. Mm -hmm. You know, private equity, that market is still almost shut down. We're not seeing uh, many acquisitions. You guys aren't having the classic merger Monday like we used to. We're seeing a few of those. Financing has gone up very high, so it's much more expensive than it was before. And conversely, then, we're not seeing distributions. So private equity is sitting on a lot of capital. Fundraising is going very slowly. Uh, and everything's still somewhat priced to perfection. So they're not rushing out there because they see this looming recession as well. Mm. Private credit, on the other hand, that's the other side of the balance sheet. And that is looking attractive. You know, the, after 08, the banks really stepped away from the private markets uh, and loaning corporations money. And so asset backed loans are very attractive, uh, any kind of loan. But again, you've a private loan. You've got to do your due diligence and understand your credit. But there are lots of opportunities. Now, there's a lot of money in that marketplace, mm -hmm. but uh, and it's fairly fragmented with lots of different players. But corporations are borrowing even at these rates, and that's attractive. Chris, 30 seconds before we let you go. You said multiple times this is not the time to trade bonds. Would you ever trade bonds? What is the environment to <laughs> trade bonds? You know, uh, Katie, we're a buy and hold kind of investor. 
um, you know, because I have a 30-year investment horizon. If I have to, I can hold till maturity. Uh, we're always adjusting duration. But so to your audience, that's really what I mean, is that somebody is either trading a bond in and out or trying to mess with duration or credit exposure to try and take advantage of it. Look at the, the Bloomberg Ag has been very low returns, two years ago negative, last year slightly negative. It's a really tough market to make a lot of money in fixed mm-hmm. income. Yep. As rates rise, buy and hold, you can make a decent a uh, high single-digit return, which is what should satisfy people given the risk. And you've been listening to Chris Ailman, CIO at CalSTRS, with Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld and Scarlett Fu. So where do you put your money with the Fed getting attention but the economy still spotty? That's a very good question, Ed, and something a lot of people are asking. And Liz Ann Saunders, she's chief investment strategist over at Charles Schwab. Well, she had some advice that is getting a lot of attention right now from our Bloomberg Terminal customers. That's right. And here's Bloomberg's Tom Keen with Saunders. So let's listen in. How do you participate in equities? At the margin, do you sell shares? Do you make a dramatic move to the triple leverage all cash fund? I mean, what do you do if you're in it, you're modestly or frankly really successful in equities last 12 months? What's the action plan? So I think there's there's uh, three action plans. Two of them are really back to traditional disciplines, but maybe with some fine tuning. So diversification, but we've been emphasizing this is when having some international diversification is to your benefit. And our bias has been a bit more on the developed international side than the EM side. Rebalancing, but a nuance there is maybe consider portfolio-based rebalancing versus, say, calendar-based rebalancing, like traditional mutual funds rebalance the last week of every quarter. Some individuals just do it once a year or maybe a couple times a year. Let your portfolio tell you when it's time to make an adjustment, doing some, you know, adding low, trimming high, as I like to say. And then, as you know, Tom, we've been very factor focused with kind of a quality wrapper around factors. So strong free cash flow, healthy balance sheet, self-funding companies that don't need to go to the banking system or the credit markets, positive earnings revisions, positive earnings surprise. So we think focusing on those quality-based factors with span both on the growth factor side of things and the value factor side of things is the way to approach what you're doing inside your equity allocation. That was Liz Ann Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab with Bloomberg's Tom Keene. And coming up... New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy on taxes, the economy, the budget and the 2024 presidential race. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy is out and about talking about his state budget, the economy, and the issue that he has with New York City's congestion pricing plan. He sure is, Ed. And Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern caught up with Governor Murphy, and she had a chance to ask him all about it. Check this out. You avoided a government shutdown in your state, record-setting budget. How concerned are you, though, about further spending into an economy that already is dealing with high inflation and there's also concerns about a recession that could affect residents in your state? With you, Anne-Marie, notwithstanding the criticisms you cited, in fact, almost universally the opposite is true. 
Uh, it's the most fiscally responsible budget in the history of the state. It has the highest surplus of over $8 billion. That's unheard of. Part of the reason why spending has gone up in our administration is very simply, we inherited a state uh, from the prior administration that didn't meet its obligations, it didn't make the full pension payment, it didn't fully fund public education, it didn't invest in the economy or in addressing inequities, and we've done all of that. Uh, I'm worried, uh, like everybody is, about a potential softening of the economy, which is why we have, again, a record surplus, paying down indebtedness. We made our full pension payment. We fully funded public education. Uh, we've now had 20 tax cuts for middle-class families and seniors since we came into office. Uh, so I, I am very comfortable with this budget, notwithstanding a lot of uncertainty, uncertainty in the world, for sure. Uh, there also is going to be a sunset on uh, a tax that businesses pay, and a lot of conservatives have been pushing for this. You yourself uh, think that actually this is prudent for the state of New Jersey to remain competitive. But it's drawn a lot of error from uh, progressives who want to see it. The other concern at the same time is states like yours are starting to see more limited tax revenues as the economy slows. Are you prepared? Is Jersey prepared when the collections potentially start to slow even further or at one point maybe go negative? Yeah, I mean, the answer in short is we are, but that's a new thing for New Jersey. We haven't been this well prepared in 30 or 40 years. In fact, we have let this corporate surcharge uh, sunset, and that was the right thing to do. We put it in place when I first got into office, when I inherited a state that was a fiscal train wreck, and we had no other choice. But we made a commitment to the big corporations that said, listen, you pay up a little bit here more for a bridge period. Uh, we will be true to our word and let this expire. We need you to be true to your word that uh, you've said to us, if you let it expire, we're going to invest and create more jobs in the state. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is, I do expect that the economy will soften. And when you look at our big drivers of revenue, corporate business tax, personal income tax, sales tax, we monitor those literally on a daily basis. And we think we've got a big enough surplus and enough latitude in this budget that we'll be able to withstand uh, a softness and frankly come out the other side of that uh, stronger than ever before. When you're looking at taxes at places like New Jersey, like New York, obviously these are states that are looking for relief when it comes to taxes. And the New Jersey Congressman Josh Gottheimer weighed in on SALT deduction. This was a conversation um, with us here on Wall Street Wall Street Week back in May. Take a listen to what he had to say. I think the Republicans know that they have two and a half years to figure something out to cut a deal. As time goes on, it's less and less attractive to negotiate, and we'll just take the full deduction back. Mm -hmm. Governor, do you see any hope in Washington that salt will be on the table to, for a discussion? I certainly hope so. I mean, Josh has been a great fighter on this. Uh, we've fought it every step of the way. It's ironic for all the criticism we face from our friends across the aisle. The biggest, overwhelmingly, the biggest tax ever imposed on New Jersey residents was the cap limiting the state and local tax deduction. That was brought to you by Donald Trump and a Republican-led Congress. Uh, so folks, let's, let's, let's make sure we're being honest with ourselves. Listen, I hope there's latitude for some kind of a deal. I think Josh is rightfully pointing out that as the clock ticks further and further, 
toward this deadline, uh, there may be less latitude, but I'm not going to give up fighting for it. I want to ask you about um, another topic that I know is incredibly important to you, and this is what's going on in New York in terms of the congestion pricing plan. And it's reported that you've actually hired attorneys. Do you plan on suing New York? No news to make there yet, Anne-Marie, but we are lawyering up and we're considering all of our options. I'm not opposed to to mitigating climate or pollution. In fact, we've got the strongest environmental record of any state in America. But we can't fix a broken MTA in New York City on the back of New Jersey commuters. Uh, That's not our job. And and so this discriminates against New Jersey commuters. It's a huge tax on them. It frankly challenges our environment because of all the rerouting of traffic that will take place. I'm extremely what would you propose instead of congestion pricing? At a certain time and place and, and at a certain rate, this is not necessarily a bad idea. But let me just remind everybody, before we got here, everybody dragged their feet on the Port Authority bus terminal. Everybody dragged their feet and canceled the gateway tunnel predecessor project. When both of those are complete and there's a fair deal to discuss, that's something I'd be completely open to. But this is not the time or the place. And I'm not going to allow the MTA to balance its books on the back of New Jersey commuters. You said you are lawyering up. So are you looking at all the potential legal paths forward for Jersey? We are in all aspects, legal and otherwise. And we also have the Port Authority, which is a which is a player here. And and that's uh, another avenue that we are constantly assessing. Uh, we cannot allow this to the MTA to fix its broken finances on the back of Jersey commuters. We're not going to let that happen. And I just want to end on the political landscape. Of course, the 2024 GOP hopeful is your predecessor. He's going after this anti-Trump lane. Um, doesn't seem like it's potentially working with Trump's base, though, because Trump has this massive appeal on the base. Do you think potentially he can draw voters on the Democratic side, given uh, he was the governor at one point of your state? I'm not sure about that, honestly. I think he's been very effective on prosecuting the the case against uh, former President Trump. And I think if he's on the debate stage, he'll prove that even more so. I just wish he had been like this in 2016, because one could argue that the Mm -hmm. biggest, most important endorsement that Donald Trump got as a candidate that year was from Chris Christie. I guess better late than never, uh, but I think he's very effective and I wouldn't underestimate him. And you're, of course, involved in 2024 because you're on the president's advisory board. You're going to be a surrogate, I imagine, really going out on the campaign trails. We gear up for November of 2024. Do you expect that you're going to be used even more to go out and pitch the president's agenda, given the fact that poll after poll continues to um, just show that Americans are still quite concerned about the president's age? Yeah, I'd be happy to go out anytime, anywhere for the president and vice president. Their track record... I'd say in particular on the economy and on leading the coalition in this aggressive, uh, obscene war that Russia has uh, has, uh, initiated on Ukraine. I think the work on both of those fronts is outstanding. I read somewhere recently, and this is important to note, that Ronald Reagan's numbers in the middle of 1983 were actually quite weak. The economic recovery had really started with the Wall Street upsurge in the late summer of 82. And it hadn't caught up with his popularity. I suspect you're going to see something very similar happen 
with Joe Biden. And if I could be a part of that as a surrogate or any other way, I'd be honored to. You still keeping the door open for your own political future for the executive branch? That's an emphatic no, but thank you for asking. <laughs> well, I mean, you've um, alluded to it in the past. So uh, many are still potentially thinking that you might wait in the wings if potentially there isn't a Biden in 2024 or maybe in 2028. So if you change your mind, uh, please do let uh, us uh, know first here. Uh, you'll, be, you'll be the first I call, but I'm a thousand percent behind Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. That was New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy with Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern. And coming up... How much will those student debt repayments weigh on the economy? We'll take a close-up look. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Ed, the Supreme Court decision to throw out President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, well, it is already rippling through the economy. That's right, Denise. And somewhere between 40 and 45 million people estimated to be affected by the high court's ruling. Right. And it's a big political issue, too. President Biden slamming Republicans and the six conservative justices on the Supreme Court for ending his student debt relief program. And he's also calling out the Nebraska Attorney General and the five other states that sued to stop his student loan forgiveness. He says they hurt their own people. You know, these Republican officials just couldn't bear the thought of providing relief for working class, middle class Americans. Republican state officials sued my administration attempting to block relief, including millions of their own constituents. Biden was trying to wipe out some $430 billion in student debt. And now that the early efforts have failed, we may have a new thing to worry about. Because, well, Denise, you took a close-up look and discovered the headlines about the Supreme Court and the failure of Biden's student loan forgiveness plan altogether. Well, it may already be impacting the economy. Let's listen in. It's hard for me to wrap my head around repayment becoming a thing just because it's been it's been pushed off so many times up until this point. Megan is 25. She's been working at charter schools in Boston and elsewhere after graduating from a top private liberal arts college in Connecticut. And she says she's in shock that she'll have to start repaying all of the tens of thousands of dollars she owes. I can see myself my lifestyle changing a lot, unfortunately. And Megan is one of millions of students, former students and others reeling after the Supreme Court threw out the Biden administration's plan to forgive between ten and $20,000 of student debt for many. For the typical student loan borrower, they're, they're going to have to start paying about three, $400 a month. Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics, says the one-two punch of not having some of the debt forgiven and Having to resume the monthly payments as soon as October is going to be painful. For many student loan borrowers, younger borrowers, lower income borrowers, that's tough. Tough for borrowers like 27-year-old Marcus, a middle school history teacher and first-generation college grad in the Philadelphia metro who owes about $50,000 in student loans and says all of this has him feeling anxious. I'm feeling pretty, uh, I'm not going to lie, it does sting. It does hurt. The fact is, uh, 
you know, we're not going to be given this assistance. Marcus is already cutting spending to get ready for the hundreds of dollars a month he now expects to start paying back. Um, I'm cutting coffee every day. Like I'm basically building that as the end of the week luxury or gift. I'm um, cutting like daily, daily stuff. Just like, you know, if I want a snack, this or that, I'm like, do I need this or I need that? So it's essentially I'm like cutting certain portions of my food and also just like limiting how many times I go out socially as well. An economist Zandi says on top of cuts in discretionary spending, like the ones Marcus is talking about, borrowers are going to start cutting back on basic necessities, especially in the face of the higher cost of living that people are already struggling with. People will have to juggle, meaning, you know, they'll be paying late on this and then paying that and then being late on that and paying this. And so it's going to be, you know, very uncomfortable for a lot of these folks that have been uh, able to uh, not pay on their student loan for the past several years. And Sandy also says once payment requirements ramp up and if borrowers do make their payments, this will take 50 to $60 billion a year out of spending. Probably about a quarter point point three percentage points of GDP. And Sandy says the timing for all this isn't great. It doesn't mean we're going into recession, all else being equal, but it certainly makes the economy, which is already vulnerable, even even more at risk if anything else were to go wrong. Obviously, we're dealing with a lot of things that could possibly go wrong. Some other economists are even more worried than Zandi, including Thomas Simons, U.S. economist at Jefferies. It's almost like a tax increase. And Simons calls this impact very significant. $400 times 45 million people is almost $18 billion a month in the aggregate. And that is roughly a little bit less than 1% of nominal monthly personal income. Simon says, watch for a hit to spending on home appliances, travel, and any other aspirational spending. If you're looking at just discretionary spending, so taking out things like spending on uh, housing or health care or uh, utilities and that sort of thing, uh, it's closer to 2% when you get down to that. Megan says she is planning on cutting back on buying locally sourced food from upscale retailers and also cutting back on travel and on other big ticket items key to the U.S. economy as well. My car is so old, so I just think like it's when it dies, it dies and I won't I won't buy a car. I won't have to worry about gas or anything. And Simon says the cutbacks like the ones Megan is talking about come at a bad time for the U.S. economy as people start to run out of savings they've been using to keep up consumer spending. I think that you know we're pretty close to the end of how much longer that can continue without more sort of rebudgeting going on and people mm-hmm. shifting their spending more towards essentials. And as that happens, you know, there are knock-on effects that eventually lead to higher unemployment and unfortunately a recession as well. Some borrowers have already shifted their spending to essentials and are still struggling, even without making payments, including Mariah, a 29-year-old in the Phoenix Metro with an undergraduate degree as an athletic trainer who says as a first-generation college student, she thought her degree was the end of her problems, but it turned out to be just the beginning. I feel like I will never break even. Mariah says she was skipping some student loan repayments even before the pandemic moratorium began after salaries in her field failed to rise as much as projected and the cost of certifications intensified. And now, after a car accident and a layoff, she doesn't think she'll be able to start making payments again anytime soon. I did the math and I realized for every $2,000 I put in, they get about $4,000 worth of interest. And she describes herself as worse off 
than some of her friends who didn't go to college. I, I do have friends that have that didn't go to college. And I honestly, jo- I thought the joke was on them. And it's like the joke's on me. And current students and recent grads aren't the only ones hurting. Fidelity estimates older borrowers will be among the hardest hit, with baby boomers possibly facing payments of an average $600 a month, including for Parent PLUS loans they took out for their children. And Jeffrey Simon says watch for boomer borrowers to struggle to keep up with their other debt. They have other debt that they did not have a moratorium on, right? So like auto loans and mortgages and all these other sorts of things. So I think that that's another issue is that as student loan payments start to begin again, you're going to see a little bit more stress in credit quality and and, uh, delinquency rates for these other products that maybe don't necessarily look like they would be coming from recent college graduates. One thing that could help ease the pain, the Biden administration is now offering a plan that would let borrowers ease back into student loan payments over time. Zandi says reality will sink in for those who owe. It's not a gift. It wasn't a gift in the first place. It was a loan. And I think students know that, understand that. And Zandi says borrowers who didn't get their degrees may struggle the most. And of course, for the borrowers who did keep making payments during the pandemic, they were able to pay down principal. And that's a good thing for their own balance sheets and for the economy. But especially for those who have not paid down their debt, Simon says the now you see it, now you don't shock of not getting flat out loan forgiveness is going to have an extra impact on spending plans. Certainly consumer and you know psychology is going to play into it a lot. And he says this will make millennial borrowers more cautious about spending long term on things like buying a home. You think of this as like coming into the recession and then leading out to it in maybe like two or three years. That's where we'll start to see these psychological impacts, I think, really play out. As for the students we spoke to, Megan will be in graduate school this fall and avoid payments in the short term. Mariah is hoping to boost her income to cope, but even so, she's not sure she can make the payments. And Marcus plans to use every bonus he gets to pay down principal, meaning he says he expects to have to delay making big purchases, like buying a home, for years. It puts a big wrench in the plans that I had. A wrench in the plans Marcus had, a possible wrench in plans millions of others had for their money. And as the Federal Reserve eyes more possible interest rate hikes, a potential wrench in plans for those hoping for a soft landing for the U.S. economy. Denise Pellegrini, Bloomberg Radio. Oh, Denise, nice work. Thank you. Um, a lot of stuff in there to uh, to think about, a lot of different uh, tentacles that we're going to have to deal with. Yeah, you're right, Ed. And we'll be tracking developments for you here on Bloomberg Radio as the impact on the economy continues to unfold. And coming up next here on Bloomberg Best, we're going to kick the tires of the electric vehicle market with the CEO of EV maker Rivian, R.J. Scarridge. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Denise, the road for EV makers has been rocky to say the least, but also inspiring. Yeah, both those things are certainly true, Ed. And Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow Uh, One of the people very aware of that. And he had a chance to talk about EV production and expansion with R.J. Scarringe. He's the CEO of Rivian Automotive. Check this out. We are here in Southern California, not 
in normal Illinois where the main factory is. But it's really important here because a lot of the R&D and engineering work that goes on here then gets translated to the assembly line in normal. And that is kind of the story with this company, RG Scarange. Hello. Hey, good to see you. Good to see you. The last quarter was a turning point for production, it seems. What, what did you fix? You know, we started production about 18 months ago. And in the first 12 months, we launched three different products, a truck, the SUV, and then a commercial van. And the complexity of, of launching any product uh, is incredibly high. But to launch three products in parallel with a complex supply chain, we really felt that last year. Uh, we saw it with shortages of parts, which then led to you know, shortages in terms of what we were planning to produce. But what we saw in Q2 is really the beginnings of the supply chain now really running in a healthy way. Um, I joke that we had a board meeting a, a few weeks ago, and it's the first time in a board meeting where our supply chain slide had no red on it. So supply chain is, is, is healthy, it's keeping up with production. And importantly, is not just what we saw in this quarter, but what's to come. So the continued growth in production output, which is one of the, the most important levers for us in, in terms of driving overall Your point is that you have visibility on the supply chain, yeah. and you see that you have enough parts coming in to, to get the ramp you're expecting. Well, visibility of the supply chain, and then really for us running and operating the plant um, as intended. Uh, so there's there's certainly tons of efficiency improvements that we know that we can make throughout the plant. Uh, but we're now at a point where we can be much more predictable to say, we believe we're gonna produce X number of vehicles this week, this day, this month. And given that the supply chain confidence is there and given that our operational sort of experience is, is so much stronger, we're able to have a, a level of predictability to the business that in the first 12 months, we really, really didn't have. Some are asking, why didn't you raise guidance then? Because that plant on paper is capable of building many more than 50,000 units. Yeah, for, for, you know, one of the other things we've um, gone through is just being you know, very much uh, thoughtful in, in not wanting to overpromise. So we want to we make sure that we over-deliver on, on, on our, our numbers, over-deliver on our targets. and. Um, you know, knowing all the unknowns that still exist in the system, the supply chain is much healthier, but wanting to protect for uh, just some of the unknowns that could happen. How much did the introduction of the Enduro motor have to do with, with the ramp in, in the second quarter? Yeah, so we have, uh, just as a point of context, we have a quad motor set up in our R1 vehicles. It's two motors per axle, so four motors per vehicle. And we've just launched a dual motor setup, which leverages a, a new motor family, which we call the Enduro motor family. And that Enduro is completely built in-house, the rotor, the stator, of course, just like on the, the launch configuration, we build the inverter in-house, the gearbox in-house. But when we sourced the, the power semis for the inverter in, in Enduro, we sourced in a really thoughtful way that gave us enough capacity and much more confidence around that supply chain than some of the challenges that we've had on the launch configuration. And so that not only provides a high confidence production uh, capacity on the Enduro, but it also provides risk mitigation on any shortcomings in terms of supply on the quad motor. As you know, I, I always ask Twitter, what would you ask, in this case, RJ Scarringe? Lots of people want to know about the Amazon relationship. Mm -hmm. You don't break down production by product type, R1T, R1S, or EDV, mm -hmm. but a lot of people want a sense of how many vans you're yeah. building proportionately to your consumer yeah. products. What is the main part of the business? Over, uh if you think about over the, over the full year, we, we've guided to roughly 20% of our production is, is the commercial vans. Um, you know, as we think about the business going forward, the consumer side of the business will, will grow disproportionately relative to the commercial side. 
especially as we bring in our, our next generation products with the R2 and the R2 platform, representing a, a significant step up in volume and a much lower price point, much larger adjustable market uh, with, that, with that product. That was RJ Scarringe, CEO of Rivian Automotive with Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow. And that is it for this edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And this is Bloomberg. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. (laughs) 